Hi, this is Karen Allen from Animal House and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're listening to The Claws Corner. Today's guest is an actor, director, playwright, acting teacher, and musician. His television work includes One Life to Live, Oz, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, NYPD Blue, Kojak, Equalizer, All My Children, and many more. His stage work includes Richard III, Search and Destroy, Awake and Sing, American Buffalo, and yes again, many, many more. His movies include Injustice for All, Light of Day, 645, Gangland, Money Train, McBain, Clan of the Cave Bear, and you guessed it, many, many, many more. In 2000, after establishing himself as a top acting teacher, my guest opened the TGW Acting Studio. Its credo is, a good actor doesn't get great roles, a good actor makes them great. He is also an extremely talented musician. He's performed all over New York City in clubs such as CBGB's, Limelight, and The Bitter End, even opening up for The Smithereens. He has the distinct honor of starring not in one, two cult classics, playing Fox and Walter Hills the Warriors, and John Carpenter's The Thing portraying Windows. So without further ado, please welcome the extremely talented, as you can see, the extremely <laughs> versatile, Thomas G. Waits to the Claws Corner. Thomas, how are you? Thank you. Um, thank you, Rich. That was a beautiful introduction. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I, I think you could. You have done a lot. And I want to start off with what you're currently doing, because you wrote, directed a movie it's entitled Target. It was just released recently, so let's start with that. Great. Uh, yeah, it was released on um, Prime Amazon Prime or Prime Amazon. What is the right correct? Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Thank you. Amazon Prime, uh, Google, and Apple on April eighteenth, and uh, it's called Target. It's a playful sex comedy, and um, I really pushed the envelope on this one. Uh, so the and and thank you for mentioning all the, the uh, some of the stuff that I've done and, and I know there's so much that I I forget have you know five decades in the movie business and plays and theater and films and television I mean um, I've been very lucky and uh, I've had a great great life and I I attribute it all quite frankly to um, the training that I received as a young actor at the Juilliard School. Mm -hmm. I was 17 and I got a scholarship and I was in class with Kelsey Grammer and Robin Williams and Mandy Patinkin and Bill Hurt and a few other people that have gone on to great notoriety and very talented. So one can't help but by osmosis learn from the greats by being around them. And then also we had just terrific teachers and so at a very young age, at 17, 18, I was inculcated with this sense of discipline about the work, about the honor uh, and the nobility of creating something out of nothing. You know, mm -hmm. you get a play or a movie script, it's just words on a page. It doesn't mean anything. But when you connect your imagination with your craft, you then create a character and hopefully as in some of the films you've mentioned, like Injustice for All, which I was a baby, I was 23 when I did that. Um, you know, um, getting to work with Al Pacino, 
you know, great actors, it wears, it rubs off on you, you know, one picks up a sense of, okay, uh, I see they're successful. And, you know, Kurt Russell, for example, from the thing, I see these people that are immensely talented and successful as well. What's their secret? You know, how do they do it? And I'm a good character study and uh, I'm also extremely, obviously driven and ambitious. So during the pandemic, and I said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to make a movie. So 27 drafts later, I sent it to a script doctor, spent a fortune, rewrote the entire thing and started doing readings on Zoom. Then somehow, don't ask me how, because I have no concept of how I accomplished this, but I raised the money. And uh, I shot it in 15 days and it, the production value is, um, you know, I think very high quality and the acting is great. And, you know, it's up to the audience now to decide whether or not it, it's, it's intended to be a, a playful sex comedy, as it says, uh, you know, and, and, and I really hope people get a laugh. I mean, if you get past the first 10 minutes, cause it's it really comes at you. You know, I don't fool around. I, I come out and I sucker punch the audience right off the bat. There's no easing into anything with me. And then this world unfolds before you. The world of Target, you know, which involves a married couple and their, well, his desire specifically to open up the marriage to spice it up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I, I saw I think you have a trailer online and it looks hilarious I can't wait to see I'm going to be probably watching it right after this interview is over and people need to laugh right now and I think people I love the fact that you just go full force you said sucker punch you know people I, I hate political correctness I love the fact people are, I think are afraid to laugh oh my god is that going to be offensive can I laugh at that just if it's funny it's funny you can make fun of anything if you do it in the right way and that's, that's right. I love the fact that this film is sounds like everything that I would like in a film. You described okay. it. I was doing my research on you, and I loved how you described it. You said it's the Big Lebowski meets meets meet the Packers. <laughs> yeah, and it definitely has the 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 world. You know how the Big Lebowski, the Coen Brothers created this world. Mm-hmm. And you just bought into it. It was this crazy, kooky world. And if you accept the conceit of the world that the um, writer is trying to create to invite you in, then it, it, it becomes a, an extremely satisfying experience because you can hopefully one can see oneself in uh, some of the characters, I hope. Did, it ha- did you have any showings in the theater? Yeah, we've had three uh, screenings. The first one, you know, uh, was right after I did the final cut. I sent a copy to John Carpenter. All right. Because uh, John had kind of mentored me along the way. I, I It's very hard making movies. Anybody out there that's ever tried knows. Anybody ever out there that wants to, you need to know that it is sort of like going to war, mm-hmm. which is probably why Oliver Stone was a good filmmaker. Uh, you are at 
battling against light because in film everything is light mm -hmm. and you're battling against you know budget restrictions you're battling against equipment failures and all these things would happen to me and i'd call john and i'd go john you know i'm ready to jump off the roof what am i going to do you know i so there's no we have no lights and they won't replace <laughs> you know hey take a walk tommy take, take it easy just take a walk and just relax your mind and try not to think about it for a second just think about something else and how's the weather out there you know he got sort of talked me off the ledge and yeah. and then when it came to cutting it uh you know i had some questions with regard to um composition uh, with regard to precisely, you know, I'm a very precise director in the sense that, you know, I want that, you know, bottle of water to be lifted up on that line and put down exactly on that line and no place else. Let's do it again, please. And, uh, you know, that's because I have a, I see how I want it to be, you know, and I much prefer that in the world when I'm working with a director that knows what he wants as opposed to like, well, you know, just do whatever you want. I mean, you can't, it can't be anarchy. Mm -hmm. it, it just, it, it needs, it requires craft and skill to tell the story. And, you know, there's the actor's job, the director's job, the crew, you know, I had an amazing crew and these people worked for, I mean, I had three producers and all of whom worked full-time on the movie the whole three weeks and all had regular full-time jobs that did everything for a point on the back end. Wow. And I never got paid. Uh, the actors got paid, of course. And, uh, you know, I was happy to do that. But um, it's very, uh, it, you know, it was right after COVID, so I had to pay people to spray aerosol with whatever the good that's going to do i have no idea against covid but yeah. you know sag said you have to pay him 150 bucks a day these two kids you know they, they get up and spray and wipe everything down and sit down and watch they were nice kids but uh it got very expensive and because of the sexual uh tone of the film there's no nudity in, in point of fact one of the distributors that turned me down said now if you had nudity I'd buy it in a second. <laughs> and I said, well, that isn't the film that I was trying to make. I, I, I'm trying to insinuate the power of sex on the mind yeah. and the influence it has in a, in a sort of Freudian way, really. Um, that, that we are really driven by our sexual need to gain approval from I'm speaking generally the opposite sex or if one yeah. is gay from the same sex, but there there's always lurking in the subconscious mind. You know, does she like me? Does she find me attractive? Does he like me? Does, does he like my hair? Or the way? And this is a very powerful theme to work with, with regard to telling stories. And I thought I would just go right after it. I've never seen a movie about a guy that wanted his wife to, have sex with other men in front of him. I mean, maybe they do it in porn. I, I really don't know. I don't watch porn, but yeah, I'm told that they do. Uh, but it's, um, I, I just went to the most, I figured I'm, I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to make it stand out. 
with this low a budget, I've got to do something, mm-hmm. you know, be provocative or be forgotten is my motto. Yeah. I so I that. figured I'd come out swinging and that's what I did. Yeah, no, I love that because it's a passion project for you. So where did the inspiration come from this, come for this movie? It actually, it started listening, you know, during the pandemic, there wasn't much to do, as you know, in New York, we were locked in our apartments, you know, we can only go to the grocery store and uh, drugstore. That was it. Um, I heard a story on NPR about orphans, children that are adopted, um, you know, only for the financial uh, return that the parents get. They take a kid in, they give them a place to live, but they really don't care about the kid. They just want the money from the government. And then they get rid of him after a couple of years and he goes to another house. And uh, I started thinking to myself, that would and in and, and point of fact, everyone uh, agrees that like 90 percent of orphan children um, end up in prison because they don't know anything else except what they've learned was just to steal and lie and cheat and get over it. You know, that lack of love has a, a deleterious effect on one's development as a human being. And so I started with that character the young man, troubled motorcycle stealing James Dean of the 21st century is what I was going for. Mm -hmm. I started with him and then I thought, you know, what's going on in my life and how can I use what's going on with me in my personal life and tell the truth in this story? Mm -hmm. And um, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I do exploit some of myself, but some of it is fictional memoir, so to speak. But it was really great fun making it, and I can't wait to make the next one. Oh, there's going to be a sequel? Um, I actually, it's interesting you said that I have an idea called Target Practice, (laughs) where the, the woman played by a terrific actress in my film called named Jam Murphy. She's just a beautiful woman and a great, brilliant actress, a great comedic actress as well. Great physical comedy. And I have this idea that she moves to New York after this experience and starts her own life Uh, and starts making decisions about uh, what her sexual preferences and agenda might be on her own as opposed to uh under the guise of a you know being married to a wealthy older man i love you can turn this into a whole series yeah yeah she can just keep going (laughs) well you know i like the fact that you um had some great advice from jack carpenter i love jack carpenter's style with him it's always less is more I like I love the original Halloween way more than I like Rob Zombies because I think he far too much explains how he became the boogeyman. I don't really care how he became the boogeyman. He's the boogeyman. He kills people, and it's just like all John Carpenter's movies are like that. But another reason I like that you fact that you consulted him is because, like you, he likes to do the music for his movies. And I was watching an interview with you so I can do my research, and I saw you perform the song "Ride" that is in the movie. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, right. I, right. All right. That's one of my songs. Yeah. Oh, is is that on? Is that is that out there on YouTube somewhere? Yeah, it's out there on YouTube. When I was doing my research, I said I was I, I had so much fun doing my research on you because, like I said in the intro, that was just a portion of what you've done. You've done so much, but yeah, when I was getting ready for uh, Target, there was uh, you played the song, so I know that ride. And so I have to say, it's a great song. I loved it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Do you have any other songs that you have in the movie? Yeah, I wrote all of the. I think there are eight songs, and I I wrote seven of them. Wow. And one of them was written by a friend of mine, and um, I play on it. I play the guitar, and maybe the keyboard on that one. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but yeah, I had a big hand in the music. Um, like John, uh, you know, he did it as well as the same reason I did it is is you know financially. There's just a hundred and fifty thousand dollars is. is a very tiny micro budget so when it came to post-production i'm a musician and i'm really you know attuned to sound <clears throat> and yeah. i needed the sound track to be as visceral and as Im important as the film itself and i believe that it is and we're i think I think today or tomorrow we're releasing the album uh, on, on, on which are many other songs that I've written that didn't make it into the film, but that are quite good that uh, people seem to like a lot. You know, when we play them in concert, they're like, hey, wow, where can I get that? So soon you'll be able to go on all the major platforms and get uh, Thomas G. Waits music for Target. Right, so the Target soundtrack, and right now it's April twenty first. So when this interview is released, we'll be able to go on to all the platforms and check out your music. Definitely looking forward to that. Thank you. So I, I want to go back to Thomas G. Waits' early years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how a car accident, a trip to the hospital, and some demerol <laughs> led to acting. So <laughs> uh, you've definitely done your research. So I grew up in a you know, kind of a rough neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, a place called Bristol, Levittown. It, it was very bad. You know, the race riots, I saw them looking out my window as a five-year-old child. And, um, and there were gangs and I was involved in a gang, you know, way before the Warriors, I was in a real gang. And uh, I was headed for trouble. You know, I was not doing well in school. I was in Catholic school. I was driving my parents completely crazy and the cops had been to the house three times and they said the next time, bring your toothbrush because you're coming with us. And uh, the universe did me a great favor by having me get hit by a car and really uh, seriously uh, my femur snapped in half, my left femur. My um, kidney was ruptured. My ribs were broken. I had a concussion and traumatic brain injury. You know, I was really banged up. And as painful and as horrible as that was, and, you know, I was just a kid. I, I had to stay age 15 or something for almost a year in the hospital, like a year in the hospital as a teenager. I mean, that was really watching the seasons go by. And, uh, 
that's how badly damaged I, I, I badly hurt I was from the car accident. But what happened is um, back in those days, you, <laughs> you used to be able to smoke in hospital rooms. So, you know, I, I was pretty, you know, badly banged up. And so to go to sleep, they would shoot me up with Demerol. <laughs> and man, I love that stuff. <laughs> so I would light up a cigarette and I'd look out the window and I'd be like, uh, maybe this, you know, metal pike through my leg isn't so bad after all. You know? uh, maybe this is a good break from life. So I'm, I'm like getting wasted every night, passing out, you know, putting the cigarette out. Luckily, I didn't burn the hospital down. And about 10 days later, the orthopedic surgeon comes in and he's looking at the chart and he's like, wait a minute, he should not be getting this much Demerol. He's been here for two weeks. And she's like, but but he's in pain. And then they both sort of looked at me. And then I look like, you know, the canary in the coal mine or whatever. And they realized that I, what I did was I pulled the emergency cord and I'd pretend like I was in. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a shot, calm him down. And then, so, she, the nurse, Miss Richardson, she was my neighbor, lived in the back. She looked at me and she went, you ought to be an actor. And a light bulb went off over my head because I knew that my career as a sort of, you know, not very good street fighter uh, athlete was doomed. I was not going to be able to do what I did before. So I'd better find something to get into. And so I started reading. You know, I started reading Catcher in the Rye. I started reading uh, Shakespeare. I started reading, um, you know, some of the other great genius writers, Ernest Hemingway. And then when I got out of the hospital, my sister Kathleen took me to see Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'd had all this pent up emotion inside of me for so long. You know, I, I'm not a bad kid. I, I was, I was going down. I, I'm not on this earth to harm other people fights. And it was just so wrong and not me, you know? And, um, when I watched the brilliance of that film, and the actors in it, Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey, I, I wept, Rich. I, I wept for my life and the choices that I had made. And I immediately the next day, on crutches, went to the library in my high school and got a copy of Romeo and Juliet and memorized the entire balcony scene, both characters, and still know it to this day. Wow. That is and impressive. Yeah, and I used it to get into Juilliard, as a matter of fact. So Shakespeare got me out of that bad neighborhood. And uh, and I have a great reverence, and I teach Shakespeare. I have a great reverence for all the classics, actually. I mean, the Greeks, Shakespeare, uh, Restoration Comedy, um, Moliere. I mean, all of the great literature throughout the ages i feel poetry you know i'm a big poetry fan big wb yates fan these things actually can change one's consciousness mm -hmm. and so i 
immersed myself in that world and I auditioned for a play in high school and I got the lead in it and then I got fired. (laughs) (laughs) Then I auditioned for the next play and I got the lead in that and I didn't get fired. Right. I I walked (laughs) a good one for two. And (laughs) I walked on stage and said my first line and the audience cracked up laughing. And I stood there on stage and I went, this is the first time anyone's ever listened to me in my whole life. I came from a big family, Irish Catholic, poor. You know, you had to fight for a seat at the dinner table, you know. Yeah. Uh, And here I was standing here talking and 500 people were listening to every word I said. So I went, I think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And um, uh, having that laser beam focus at 17, I went to a community college for a year, did plays there. And actually, they, they were quite good teachers as well. And they recommended that I audition for Juilliard. And I thought, isn't that strange? That's a school for music. But in 1968, they had opened up a drama division under the auspices of John Houseman. Mm-hmm. the great um, partner of Orson Welles and starter, he started the Mercury Theater and produced many big films, Julius Caesar with Marlon Brando. And then went on to become something of a movie star himself mm-hmm. at the end of his life with Paper Chase. Yeah. Here's the dime. Call your parents and tell them you're on the next train home. You know, <laughs> he was a very sort of stodgy, you know, London upper class. Uh, but we had to listen to him lecture, you know, every Friday. We all had to go into the auditorium all four years. The whole, all four groups had to pile into the auditorium and John Houseman would lecture us on the ethics of the theater and how important it was to be a smart actor as well as being a strong actor. Mm-hmm. That, that strength and intelligence combined would make you different than it was kind of like the Marines for actors. And they were very tough back then. They're not so tough anymore, but back then they had a kind of sort of Damocles over your head. So with each play that you did and you did four every year, you're always in rehearsal. You're taking classes all day and rehearsing all night, every night, five days a week. And because I was a scholarship student, I had to work on the weekends. So that's what I mean about a work ethic. Yeah. You know, uh, it's nothing for me to work seven days. I think nothing of it. Um, but they had this uh, policy where they, if you weren't um, living up to their standards, they would ask you to leave the, the school. And especially a lot of pressure was put on the scholarship students. So. Um, I'll never forget the day that they kicked Kelsey Grammer out because Kelsey was before me for some reason. I don't know why that was, but we each had our interview with John Houseman and the faculty. And I'd been there two years and Kelsey had been there two years. And, you know, he came down the stairs and I'm like, Kelsey, what, what's up? And he goes, they kicked me out, Tommy. They said, I don't have enough talent. And he walked yeah. away, and I, I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I know I'm next. I'm next. It's, it's, put me on the guillotine. 
So oh, I went in and I just got a warning. Uh, I got to go another year and then I quit. Uh, I thought I was good enough to go out and work and rather arrogant of me, but true. I did quit. And <clears throat> I'd say within four months, I got my first professional acting job. Yeah. Was it, I mean, you started from a very, I mean, I didn't realize how, until I was doing my research, how late you actually started. But I mean, at 21 years old, you were offered two movies simultaneously. One was Snowbound and the other one was originally called Pity the Poor Soldier. I think it was renamed something else. So the question I have regarding that was, um, was that why did you choose the latter, even though Snowbound offered you twice the amount of money? Oh, interesting. You should say that. And, you know, you have to understand, I, I'm a kid. I was a kid with a poverty consciousness. I, I, money in movies was just so abstract to me, you know, and the, my agent, Jeff Hunter, God rest his soul. It was a great agent. Uh, you know, he called me up and he said, get into the office. We have two offers for you and we have to make a decision. And the first one was Snowbound. Uh, I think it was, um, it was directed by a very good director. And I can't remember his name, Robert Young. And uh, he really wanted me to play the lead in this part. And at the same time, I was offered Pity the Poor Soldier, which was a revolutionary war film, and a smaller part for half the pay. Now, since the advent of what I will call Disney-esque fascism that's taken over the corporatization of the movie business, uh, prior to that, there was a real search to create art, you know, to the films of the 70s, you know, uh, coming home. I mean, all the movies with Gene Wilder and Al Pacino and Dustin. These, mm -hmm. this is what I wanted to do with my life, you see. And uh, I said to my agent, I think that because it's my first movie, it's probably better if I take a smaller part and... Um, the bigger parts will come. I, I had that. that. Yeah, I had that kind of faith in myself. I don't know. Yeah. I love it because like you, you weren't in it just for the money. You cared about the craft. You took it seriously. You were disciplined. You weren't afraid to put in the work and you're like, you know what? It's going to come to me. And so I, I like the fact that you just didn't jump in, take the paycheck and say, all right, I'm out of here. Yeah, which, you know, he was shocked. He's like, you know, but I, you're broke. I mean, you're living. I was sleeping on a friend of mine's floor, three guys in a one bedroom apartment. And I was on the floor. They each had beds. I mean, I really needed the money. But. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the next movie on the yard was where I got the lead. <coughs> and that was a great experience. Yeah. I want to talk about that next. Before I do that, I want to, there's another person that did that in another, so I love the 70s movies. Those are probably my all-time favorite era. They, like you mentioned, you just mentioned a couple of all the great movies. But another one, Sylvester Stallone, they said, we don't want you, we want the script, we don't want you. And he goes, I'm not telling you a script unless I'm in it. And he was so broke that he would actually feed his dog before he would eat himself. So he stuck to his guns and look where he is now. So yeah, if you believe in yourself, yes. Good old Sly. I mean, he they offered him a lot of money. Yeah. 
I, I forget the amount. I know it was quoted. I think it was $350,000. And that back then? 1976, yeah. That was the money. Yeah. You know, that'd be like a million bucks today for, for wow. a first-time screenwriter. Yeah. No, but he stuck to his guns, and he... I'm glad he, he, he believed in himself just like you. And so your the next one was 1978 was on the yard with John Hurd. And was it after that that you were offered a three picture deal? Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to pass over John Hurd so quickly because he meant a great deal to me as a person and as an actor, a brilliant, incredible actor. Uh, <clears throat> he was playing Cassio in Othello in Central Park. Raul Julia was Othello. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful production by directed by Wilfred Leach. And uh, some famous, well, his kid's famous now, but some famous director was flown to the East Coast to look at Richard Dreyfus for the lead in his next film called Cutter's Cutter and Bone. Mm -hmm. And this guy whose name escapes me watched Othello and went running to the payphones on Central Park West and said, you know, forget Richard Dreyfus. I just saw the actor that I want for my film. His name is John Hurd and please call him and make him an offer tomorrow. And the movie was Cutter's Way with jeff bridges yeah and john was great in that and and he was a great great actor on stage as well as film and he taught me everything i know about film acting <clears throat> you know uh because i didn't know what i was 22 years old and i was like here you have the lead in this movie you know go ahead and i didn't really know what i was doing and i didn't know how to use the camera i didn't know how to work with the direct, I, I didn't know I was lost and in way over my head. Yeah. And John, like a big brother, kind of, he must have watched the first couple takes on my first day on the set and said, you know, like, come with me, son. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we worked on the script all night, every night and rewrote all of my scenes. I mean, this is a, to absolute zero benefit to himself. It was only to make me better in the film. Mm -hmm. And he improved my performance by a thousand percent. I went on the set the next day, not only having rewritten the scenes with John, but I knew how to play them. Yeah. And I got quite good notices, as I recall. And that was how I got the offer to um, audition for the Warriors and the Wanderers, and I got offered both of them too. And uh, then I um, got a three-picture deal with Paramount Pictures. Yeah, wow. Yeah, at twenty-three. Yeah, that that's that's insane. Because so that that's I mean, just shows how how talented you are. That twenty-three years old, they're offering you a three-picture deal, and then they want you for the lead. It's just a uh, but I mean, I want to talk about the Warriors. And well, first of all, I want to talk about the Wanderers. Why did you choose the Warriors over the Wanderers? Because you know, um, Walter brought me to the old Gulf and Western Building and said, you know, I want to screen 
East of Eden, no, Rebel Without a Cause with you. Because that's how I see the character. And I was like, great. So I watched the movie with him and he seemed a sensitive man to me. And, and I thought that we had connected as people. And even though Philip Kaufman, also a brilliant director, uh, I thought I would choose the warriors. And there was also the carrot at the end of the stick of the three picture deal, which wasn't true in the other case. Uh, and um, that's sort of where the trouble began is I thought Walter and I were making a movie about how love, the love story supersedes the violence that these people uh, exist with every day of their lives. And, you know, I was wrong. That wasn't the movie he was making. He was making a sort of Western, uh, futuristic Western uh, about gangs. Yeah. In, in New York City. And and he is very smart and knew what he wanted. And I got fired from that job, uh, much to my chagrin. And after the movie was completed, they sent it to me and said, you know, we need to change the billing because you're obviously not you're supposed to be Thomas Waits above the title in The Warriors. And uh, I watched it and... I was such a spiteful and arrogant young person that I said, well, Peter O'Toole took his name off a movie he didn't like, so take my name off the credits. <laughs> and that really uh, that really pissed off Walter Hill and it, it, it hurt him. And rightfully so, I was a pain in the neck. I kept going up to him and questioning him you know, you have to understand directing a movie is, like I said, it's like a general leading a battle at war. And then there's this pain in the ass actor that's going, well, wait a minute. What about, and you know, like, just get the fuck out of here. You know, tell him not to come back. And yeah. so I got fired and, and it was a very painful lesson. You know, I wish he had given me a warning. I would have straightened up and, you know, fly right or whatever that expression is. Uh, but uh you know he saw to it that the best way was you know for me to uh not come back it wasn't true the studio wanted to keep you it's him it's walter that wanted to get rid of you so the studio wanted you yeah the studio must have wanted me because uh in his version of the final cut i'm hardly in the movie at all yeah and they were like no we like this kid waits and um i think even the critics said that the movie kind of loses interest after my character dies mm -hmm. uh but it was really all my fault rich it was you know i just was um someone who got too much success too soon and couldn't handle it number one i didn't have great relationships with authority figures to begin with you know i was always a you know, kid in trouble and i was a disruptive influence on a set where a director was over budget behind schedule his most recent film which was uh 
the driver with Ryan O'Neill and Bruce Stern collapsed at the box office. Mm -hmm. So the pressure on this poor guy must have been, you know, uh, he he must have been so freaked out trying to get this movie done, and he's he had to deal with thousands of extras, and he, you know, I mean, I just wasn't mature or sensitive enough to realize that I was being such a pain in the balls, and so he um, he fired me, and as painful as it was, I came to a crossroads early in my life that I really needed more discipline. So I became a black belt in karate. Right. I don't, I don't train anymore, but uh, I got, I was very serious about it for 10 years. And um, I went into therapy and I, I certainly immersed myself in becoming a better musician. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to take, you know, um, I tried to be an alchemist and take the garbage and turn it into gold. I had created the garbage, mind you. Let's, you know, this was no one's fault but my own. And yet I knew I had to dig my way out of it. And and I did because a couple months later, I auditioned for Injustice for All and got the role with Al Pacino. And then I went on to do several plays with Al and spend a lot of time with him and get to know him, you know. Well, we're going to get into that, but before we even get there, I just want to say, I remember what I was like when I was 23 years old. I was very arrogant, and especially with you, you had all that success. You're at the same parties with John Belushi. You have a wild crowd you're hanging out with. I mean, so I can completely understand your perspective. And then as you get older, you realize, like, what was I thinking? I was just an asshole. So, I mean, I completely understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've but, all made mistakes. Exactly, exactly. Especially at that young an age, you're not, you just, you're in the top of the world, and but it did work out for the best for you. Before we get to that, though, I found this out because I love Joe Walsh's In the City. I think it's a perfect song for that movie, the end when they're walking down the beach. But that wasn't the original song they wanted. What was it? The Promised Land by Bruce Springsteen. That was the song that they were going to use. And that almost made me change my mind about putting my name on the movie. When I heard, because I'm a huge Springsteen fan, I always have been. And I thought, oh, maybe this isn't going to be so bad after all. If they're going to use Promised Land, but I don't know what. Do you know what happened? Could they not get the rights or that? I'm not sure about. I didn't. I couldn't. I didn't find out why they used uh, Joe Walsh instead. But the, I just know that they went with him. It was much better. I think it's a much better choice. Joe Walsh's song. Yeah, he's a great songwriter and, and singer in his own right, and a great guitar player. Uh, and I think the song works for the film much better than Promised Land did. But it was kind of cool to see it. Yeah. And you actually jammed with Bruce Springsteen, didn't you? Or he taught you some guitars? Like, didn't you play with him at least one time? Yeah. I, I wish I could say I played with him. Uh, I went to a concert when I was shooting John Carpenter's The Thing. And uh, somehow I managed to get backstage. I can't remember how I finagled my way backstage, but there I was. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been backstage at one of these big rock stars concerts, but there is a, a plethora of food and drink. And it, it's like a feast for, you know, a king and a queen. And 
everybody comes backstage and is eating and drinking. And I talked to Bruce's dad and his sister. I became friends with his sister briefly, Pam. And then finally, you get sort of summoned into the king's chambers. <laughs> so he's sitting there, you know, with his girlfriend, Joyce Hauser at the time. And he would see people and they would stay for a few minutes and leave. And I was the last person that he saw that night. Which I don't know what that meant, if I was important or not important, but everybody else had been in and gone and there was like hardly anyone left. And they're like, okay, Tom, you can go back now. And uh, I, like Pacino, I idolized Springsteen. I just thought, you know, because we came from the same type of neighborhood and I just thought he was the greatest stage performer I'd ever seen. And, and there was this, you know, skinny, like young, shy man sitting there and he had just performed for four and a half hours. He could hardly speak. And the girl that was with me, Catlin Adams, who was in the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin many years ago, she was my date. And she didn't even know who Springsteen was, really. It was like 1980 or something. And she's like, this guy loves you. He knows every one of your lyrics because I'd be sitting there listening to you. And if I didn't understand the lyric, he'd be singing it in my ear. <laughs> and I think that, that that affected Bruce. I think that he was like, well, this guy must really be a fan, which I was, I still do, uh, you know, a great admiration for him. And, uh, so I asked him about a song that he plays and uh, it's called the dream song. And you've never heard it on any album because he's never recorded. Hang on one second. It's really cool. It's really beautiful and really, really, uh, it's an old Elvis Presley song written by a guy named Max Weinhardt. Mm -hmm. And, um, And uh, it's very. When your heart is restless, and you need to move along. When you're tired and weary. And you can't go. Anyway, it goes like that. I love it. That's a chorus, yes. And he said, do you want to learn it? And I was like, yes. So I took out an envelope and a pen and I wrote down all the chord changes. And it actually gets pretty tricky in one part. Um, there's an F sharp major in it. And an A major. Gotta follow that dream to find the love you need. And uh, he taught it to me. Wow. And I still, to this day, as you can see, play it. 
and love it. It was an old Elvis song that he did really fast. He got and Bruce took it and slowed it down and turned it into a ballad. Yeah. Which, oh, which really cool. makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was my experience with Bruce Springsteen. And then I met him again in Vancouver when I um, I went to see Bruce with Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. I was doing a movie called Clan of the Cave Bear. Mm-hmm. And Jackson was dating Daryl Hannah. So he was around a lot. And he's another incredible hero of mine, a great songwriter, singer, musician. And, um, you know, he said, hey, let's get tickets and go. And, you know, he could have gotten the first class treatment and gotten the whole, you know, VIP pack, whatever he wanted to do. But he just went like with me and sat in a regular seat, you know, in in the middle of 20,000 people or whatever. But then we both went backstage and Bruce was like, Jackson, why didn't you tell me you were there? I would have brought you up, man. He's like, no, no, I just wanted to watch. And um, to be in the room with two giants, um, one of the highlights of my life, I can say. And so I spoke to Bruce again then. And that was the last time, unfortunately. I've tried to write to him a few times, but I don't think the letters get to him or he must be too busy or whatever. Yeah. But you know, just to tell him, I, I still play that song that you taught me, you know, after all these years, 40 years ago. Um, I play it with my band. I play it at parties. <laughs> People seem to like it. Uh, but the generosity of spirit is really my point. And was music always as big a passion as acting is? No. Uh, in fact, I was stone tone deaf when I was in Juilliard. I would never have gotten into Juilliard today. They would never have taken a tone deaf actor. But uh, I realized very quickly that almost every play I got cast in, and I was working a lot, like going from play to play to play, they needed me to sing. So I was like, wow, I better get I better learn you know how to sing and and play music and so I took it upon myself to discipline myself and train my ear and uh that was an arduous task to say the least and now I listen I I was in a Broadway musical with Deborah Harry so I can't be all that bad or tone deaf um but no, I'm a, a songwriter, and uh, I don't know um, what people think really of my music, but I guess I'll soon find out. They seem to like it. It's very raw, uh, like my acting is. It's very much from my soul. Yeah. I can say the songs that I heard, I love. I went on Spotify, you had a couple songs on there, and I loved every song. And I told you I heard Ride in one of your interviews. So I'm very much looking forward to the uh, Target um, soundtrack. The, that, that music's in, is way improved over what is on, what's on Spotify is okay. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't find my musical muse, uh, Tony Daniels, he's my producer. He really taught me how to craft a song. I mean, I 
wrote all, I write them all, but he really, when you hear the music from the film, you'll hear the, the, just the, the mastery. Mm-hmm. He's a master. And uh, I was so lucky to have him, to have my editor, Jordan Santora, to have my three producers, Vinnie Petrosini, Steve Conkin, and uh, Alyssa Rabinowitz. You know, these people, they they killed themselves for me, you know, and my crew. And we worked late hours and grueling conditions at times. Uh, you know, when you're working late at night continuously, um, it, it, it wears down the crew because they have to get up the next day and work all day. And uh, so we, I tried to keep the night shoots to a minimum and then plus paying overtime. It was very stressful uh, doing a low budget film. You know, you're, you're always racing against the clock and you never have enough money. And I had to feed everybody all the time. So Mm -hmm. the next time, the next one out, I'm hoping I get a little more room to breathe now how did you raise some money for that let's get back to target for a minute did you have a kickstarter or did you um put i tried money? that you know i tried to do a gofundme and i think i raised like two grand i mean almost nothing like oh. two thousand dollars and i'm like wow how am i gonna so i went to a few benefactors whom i know and knew as a young actor and one of them actually uh he has to remain nameless because he really doesn't want anybody to know that he does this. But he had uh, financed a play that I directed, a Shakespeare play called Love's Labor's Lost, which is a very difficult play. And one of the reasons no one ever does it is because it's such a difficult play. But I decided to do it and set it in the 60s at Woodstock. And uh, it was, I thought it was pretty, pretty good, but the actors weren't ready the night that this particular benefactor came to see it. And he gave me $75,000 to do this play. You know, I wanted all the actors to get paid, you know, to make them feel like real actors. Most of them were my students. Mm -hmm. And I paid them for rehearsal and I paid them for performances and, you don't get that kind of treatment customarily in off off Broadway. And uh, so I went back to him and I said, I have an idea. I want to make a film. And he said, Tom, why would I give you money after the last thing that I gave you money for was just, I don't want to say it was terrible, but it was just not good. <laughs> And I said, uh, I, I agree with you. <laughs> so I failed. The next time I'll fail better. Fail upward. <laughs> and he he bit. And so he gave me the seed money to get started. And then I went around to some fans and some people that I know that I grew up, one guy I grew up with that did very, very well for himself. And, you know, and people, they all said to me basically the same thing. We don't even know what this, we're not going to read the script. We believe in you. Mm -hmm. We don't invest in things. We invest in people. And so uh, when I was over budget and owed a lot of money to get this thing finished, I had to go back to them. 
very complicated, you know. Yeah. Camera equipment is being rented, and the credit card is <laughs> maxed out. I'm like, ah! you know, uh, I didn't know how I was going to do it. It's only through the grace of God, and I assume my parents, who are still up there, looking out for me down here. Uh, but I finished it, and it's out there, and it's good, and it's good because. I'll tell you why it's good because my ex-wife, Lisa, Lisa Greenberg, who knows me better than anyone in the world, has seen the film now seven times. She saw all three screenings in New York, LA, and then New York. And then when it was available on the 18th, she watched it two times in a row. And wow the apartment and she's like this is really good this isn't just like it's really good you've made a really good movie and for her to like it and for my investors by the way each and every one of them that have seen it and they're the first people that would be like hey that's my money this is what you did with me they love it they especially love the, the music yeah um, and they're the ones that asked for the music to be released separately on a yeah. a separate deal. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that was the journey. And now I'm, uh, I have a horror film that I wrote for Kelsey Grammer. Uh, yeah, we've remained friends all these years. But uh, I came up with this idea of a, a main character, a villain, a sort of like Hannibal Lecter-ish character. But he only speaks in verse. So through the whole movie, like he's killing people. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou, thy worldly task has done. And, you know, <laughs> and they're all like, "Hey, man, why do you talk like that?" And so it's sort of a poetical comic horror film called Devil's Night that I am trying to get off the ground at the moment. All right. And do you have any? Any, I mean, are you just in the beginning stages of that? Have you have it written yet? The script is finished. Okay. I've fin I have written four scripts okay. since Target. I was so motivated by what I saw that I wrote uh, a sequel to Target, Target Practice. I wrote uh, a movie about boxing called The Boxer, and then another movie about boxing, only female boxers. Mm -hmm. and devil's night and oh. all four of them are like ready to they're already they've been rewritten and written sent to the script doctor washed cleaned out rewritten again combed through rewritten again and ready to go um i really enjoy writing and directing my own films and this is what i would like to do with the rest of my life along with play music all right. Well, you're definitely on the right path. <laughs> I cannot wait to see that. That sounds hilarious. And I love Kelsey Grammer. I've always liked him since the Cheers days. And I'm so glad. It's funny. I was just talking to somebody the other day about that. I said, you know, obviously Ted Danson did very well after Cheers, but the two people that really made it after Cheers were Woody Harrelson and Kelsey Grammer. They yeah. Took off, and I love that. And especially after hearing the stories you told me about him and Juilliard. That funny, he, isn't he, it? Yeah. They said I don't have enough talent. <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting thing about Kelsey. I've known a lot of successful people in my life, you know, um, 
many times success can change people and they start to believe their own press or whatever. Mm-hmm. Kelsey is the same guy that he was when we were 17 years old in 1973. He's the same. Okay. He has a lot more money now and he's everyone yeah. stops him for pictures and he's a big famous TV and movie star and he's quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sings, he's got a beautiful singing voice. He's a very talented guy. But this guy says, please, thank you to every waiter, every waitress. He opens doors for people. He's the same kid that I went to school with. And I don't think that's the case with a lot of people that become mega successful. You know, it goes into your ego. Your ego is your enemy, you know. Yeah. Isn't that what Anthony Hopkins said? I saw him on the on internet the other day. And he's like, ego, you have to have a little bit of ego to keep you going. Mm-hmm. And that's true. I mean, think about it. You're asking people to stop what they're doing and look at you and listen to you for however long, two minutes, 10 minutes, two hours, however long it is. It's a long time. You're saying, hey, look, forget your life. This is the life I want you to be involved with. It's me, mine, whether as an actor or a director or musician. And there is a certain degree of narcissism, I think, involved in that healthy narcissism right? love yourself but uh really ego is the enemy and i've seen a lot of guys change just completely change because of success it's like a drug yeah unfortunately. You, know? you can have the confidence without the arrogance i do now yeah i'm, I'm not saying you i'm just saying people when you're talking about you have to have some kind of a little bit of ego and narcissism i'm saying in general you could have confidence without arrogance and say you know what i'm good i know i'm good i want people to watch me without becoming some of the other mega stars that you're you're talking about that's what i meant by that that's right i think yeah. that's exactly right you know a, a great example of that in current day pop culture is the quarterback for the philadelphia eagles you know i'm a big eagles fan because i grew up in philly and you know, after the Super Bowl, which was a terrible loss, uh, he said, you either lose or you learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, 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 I look to him because he's such a good leader. He never gets ruffled. You know, when, even when things aren't going his way during the game, he, he stays calm. He never blames anybody. And that's the kind of director I'd like to be as I, I tried to be and think I succeeded creating a set where like John Carpenter does, everyone's having fun. You know, of course it's work. Of course we're making a movie, but you know, let's have fun, mm-hmm. you know? And I learned that from John and I learned that from the great Norman Jewison. He always, Norman is a great director. He's an actor's director, you know, I loved working with him. You know, I interviewed Ted Neely, who Norman directed in Jesus Christ Superstar, and he was saying the same thing about Norman. And I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I did meet him at a screening. They had, similar to when I met you in Coney Island for the Warriors, I was able to watch Jesus Christ Superstar with the cast, and Norman was there. But I I loved that, the Cincinnati kid. I want to talk about Injustice for All, because we 
You mentioned that after the Warriors, and the next up was Injustice for All. So tell me how a trip to the dentist for Al Pacino pushed back your audition. (laughs) I can't believe these stories actually get out there. So, you know, now this is like probably early September, and I've been fired, I guess, about four weeks now, about a month, and I'm still really i was rattled i was thrown i mean i i was scared i was a scared kid i thought i really i've fucked this up you know i was on my way and i but my agent called me and said um norman jewison called and said uh you know, are you, are you an okay guy? I mean, are you a good guy? Was, was the Warriors thing an anomaly or is is that my agent assured him, no, that I was a good guy and a good actor and easy to work with, which ever since the Warriors, I've been a dream for every director I've ever worked with. Believe me. Uh, Would you go in an audition for this film and justice for all? And I said, well, I get to audition with Al. And he said, yeah. So I'm like, fuck, oh my God. I saw The Godfather. I became Al Pacino for about a week. I was talking like him. I mean, he's just such an amazing actor, especially in The Godfather. I mean, he redefined the whole genre of what a young leading man could be in the movies. Yeah. And uh, so I get to Martin Bregman's office and Martin was Al's manager at the time and they were involved in producing uh, Injustice for All. And I see Al come out to the secretary and he says to her, we're going to go home, we're going to dentist appointment, I'll be back. And uh, I don't know where I got the balls to do this. I go, excuse me, I was supposed to audition with you at 2.15 today. And if you leave, I mean, what's the deal? And he must have been so like, like, who the fuck is this guy? But but he was very contrite and he's like, I'm so sorry. Can, can you, could you come back tomorrow? I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. So I came back the next day and I was like, wow, I don't know where I get the guy. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a risk taking person. I don't gamble. I don't, but when it comes to my work, I'll do anything. I love it. I'll do anything to get my work done. And uh, sure enough, I went in the next day. I auditioned with Al. We set the room on fire and um, he said something to me. I'll never forget. And I wrote it down in my diary at the time. He said, you know, kid got a beautiful tone and i went wow i have our i am at the mountaintop you know uh um, so say the two people that you admire the most in the industry bruce springsteen for music and al pacino in acting and wow you got a chance to you know not only not only you know have um play a song with bruce backstage but also you became really good friends with Al Pacino and did some plays together. Richard yeah. and, and, and American, American Buffalo is a three character play. And yes. Al and I shared the same dressing room for a year. 
I, I love that. I recently saw that in New York with Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Rockwell, yeah. and Darren Chris. Darren Chris played your character. I, I, well, I love pretty much everything David Mamet does. I love all his, everything I've seen and read from him. So that, but American Buffalo was, I could, as I was watching it um, in, off Broadway, I could picture you two on playing it. I could definitely see um, Al Pacino doing the Sam Rockwell character. I can't remember his name in the play, but. Peach. Yes, it, yes. And the interesting thing about that story is that I was doing Richard III with Al on Broadway. And we were trying it out in Philadelphia. And it was just terrible. It was like five hours long. People were walking out. I mean, it was just terrible. <laughs> and and I'm from Philly. I'm a Philly guy. So the, all the newspapers came to review us on opening night. And I think it was the Inquirer, but one of the newspapers started with, except for Thomas Waits, no one in this production knows how to speak verse. So I promptly got fired. <laughs> Again. <laughs> and I'm like, David, why are you firing me? I mean, I'm getting ovations in the middle of the play. Like, uh, you're too young. Oh. I see. Okay. They didn't want me to get the, anyway. Yeah. So that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it, it, it was bad, but th this is a classic story to tell your grandchildren. So my last night of the play, so they fired me and I turned down eight weeks of work on heaven's gate, mm -hmm. which turned into eight months of work. Thank you very much because they went so far over budget and behind schedule, they stayed out there in Montana or wherever the fuck it was. And Mickey Rourke got my part. Uh. And uh, I turned down all that money because I wanted people to see that I could do Shakespeare on Broadway. And, and here I was getting fired. So my last performance, and then they didn't have anyone to replace me. So they're like, you're fired, but can you still do the part? And I'm like, what the? <laughs> so i go okay i'll, I'll my, i'm an actor hmm. i act right so i did the play for two more weeks wow even after i knew i was fired in my very last night i was so upset i did something i don't recommend anybody do but i did it i smoked a joint right before i walked out on stage <laughs> <laughs> Richmond comes on at the end of the play and he kills Richard III and he becomes uh, Henry VII, I believe it is, um, uh, Queen Elizabeth's grandfather. And he's a great hero in Shakespeare's uh, storyline. And Richmond is this young warrior. And so on the stage right side, Al Pacino had his camp of soldiers and on the stage left side, I had my camp of soldiers and the lights would switch back and forth to our respective camps. And we would have these scenes and then we went into battle and I killed them. So the lights come up on my camp and I'm so stoned out of my mind. I don't know. What <laughs> I start doing knuckle push-ups. <laughs> and I... <laughs> The audience, who's 
bored to death by this point in the play are <laughs> laughing their ass off. They're like, oh, what? that's what hilarious. And Al's over there going, what the hell? What are they laughing at? They're not supposed to be laughing here. So I have this big sword fight with him. I kill him and he dies with his eyes facing the audience wide open. And I had this big, beautiful velour cape and I took the cape off and I threw it over his head. <laughs> that is hilarious. And the next day the cape was gone from my dressing room. <laughs> and that was your final performance? And, and the next day I had to come back to get my stuff and Al's bodyguards Al's bodyguards come up to me and they go, uh, Mr. P wants to see you in his dressing room. I'm like, what? This is like going to see Michael Corleone, right? It's like, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Alfredo, you know. Oh, man. You're going to have to sleep with the fishes. So I go into Al's dressing room and he's like, kid, what's the matter with you? You've got all this stuff going for What are you doing out there? And I said, you know, I turned down all this work to stay in this play, to be with you, and I got fired, and it's not fair, and I'm really upset about it. And he understood. And he, so I have, I don't know why, I happened to have a copy of American Buffalo in my back pocket. When I was a young actor, I always had a play on me. I was always reading a play, reading a play, reading a play. So I put American Buffalo down on his dressing table. And I said, if you're going to do a play, Al, this is the play you should do. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll never see this guy again. And then six months later, he called, my agent called me and said, Al wants you to come over to his apartment and read American Buffalo. Wow. And uh, and we read it and then we did it. And it was a huge success. I mean, we had lines around the block all the way out to Sixth Avenue every night, people trying to get tickets to get in to see that. uh, and Al was brilliant. I mean, I don't, I'm sure Sam Rockwell, who's a very good actor, was good too. Yeah. Uh, but Al's a street guy. Mm-hmm. When he threatens, it's not an actor threatening somebody. He scares the living daylights out of people. When he walked yeah. around, yeah, you know, with that pig iron. Yeah. When he walked around with that chunk of steel, you held your breath. <laughs> and uh, and he taught me a great deal. You know, being on stage with him every night was really exciting and wonderful. And uh, it that's what got me the job with John Carpenter. Is John and Kurt mm-hmm. came to see American Buffalo and then asked me to come in and audition for a character named Santiago. (laughs) Which, uh, obviously, the name had to change. So they cast me, and his name was John Simmons or some... Mm -hmm. I can't remember what, but it was a very bland, nondescript name. And, you know, I saw the green glasses, and I brought them into rehearsal, and I turned John Simmons into Windows. So, yeah, John Carpenter, or did you go re- uh, approach John Carpenter and said, I want to change the name? I did in rehearsal. I was wearing my green glasses. I was in the middle of rehearsal and I said, John, I want everybody to call me Windows from now on. And he, took a, drag of, he took a drag of his cigarette and went, 
All right, everybody. From now on, Tommy wants us to call him Windows. All right, let's go to the next team, please. I love it. I can picture that so clearly. Just seeing different interviews with Jack. He seems so mellow. Just like, hey, how's it going? You know what's funny? You brought up a great point, too. I heard that story before, and you said it was the first time where it was Mac and Windows. You're right. <laughs> you have Mac and Windows in 1980 before there were even computers. And you have Mac and Windows. I mean, the whole thing covered right there. I love it. Well, I want to go back to Injustice for All for a minute because uh, there's a, that final scene that you had. Everybody knows about that infamous final scene. So when the scene wasn't working, you said that you were confused. What was the advice that Al Pacino gave you? It's really interesting because I don't generally get nervous. You know, I'm a craftsman and I know my craft and I know my level of skill and I know how to work and I pace myself. But there I was with Al Pacino on this big budget movie, this big Columbia studio pictures presents film and with the idol of my childhood. And uh, I choked, I couldn't, what I had done in the audition, I couldn't recreate. And we kept doing the scene and it was getting worse. And then I was starting to freeze up and it was getting really bad. And when an actor gets tense, you know, it's really bad. And uh, Norman Jewison, you know, to his credit, he cleared everybody out of the room. He's like, okay, everybody out. All I want is Tommy and Al. Everybody else has to go. So everyone split. And we were sitting there in the bed. And Norman's like, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. I'm confused. And Al looked at me and said, confusion is a very good state of mind for an actor to be in. I love that. And somehow I just relaxed. And, in, and Norman said, now you guys just read through the scene as if you've never heard it before read through it without any preconceived notion of how you're going to do the lines. Mm -hmm. So Al and I just sat there and we read very calmly, no emotion, no, just the words. And then I relaxed. Then we called the crew back in and I got the nickname one take Tommy. It was like <laughs> master shot, boom, medium shot, boom, close up, boom, next close up, boom, boom, boom. Wow. Knock. I mean, uh, a scene that would have taken four hours to do, I did it in two hours, I think. And it was because Norman is an actor's director, you know, he, he pays careful attention to the actor's process and a wonderful man, too. I, I, I really wish him the best wherever he is. I think he's still alive, no? Yeah, and the last time the, that Jesus Christ Superstar was five years ago, so I'm not sure if he's alive now, but I hope he is. I, I haven't heard anything from him lately, but yeah, I, like I said, Ted was Ted Neely, who played Jesus, was going on and on exactly like saying exactly what you were saying. What a great guy he is, and how he was great with the actors, and how he understood them. And he, so with, with how he was with you, did he let you improv at all, or did he say stick exactly to the script? No, no, he let us improv. In fact, there's a whole scene in that film that was cut out that Al said, if they had kept it in, I would have been nominated for an Academy Award. Wow. 
And it was a scene where he comes to visit me in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was so heartbreaking. He like he grabs onto my hand and you know, there are tears streaming down my face and I'm all beat up and uh, you know, this is before I take the hostages. And uh it was beautiful. I mean, um I've I've been such a lucky man. Uh <laughs> lucky man. Lucky man is the theme song to Target that you're about to see. Uh, I'm a lucky man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but to have all those experiences throughout the years and then to do tons of television, you know, Law and Orders, NYPD Blue, working with some great actors, you know, uh, all along the way uh, and honing my craft and watching different directors. And then, you know, I guess I just finally made an agreement with myself that I knew I could do this just as well, if not better than many of the people that I was working with. So I uh, took a gamble on myself and uh, listen, I got the movie made and it's been released. That's an accomplishment in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Just try getting a distribution deal with all the content that's out there now. It's very difficult. And, and again, I love the fact that you stuck your guns, you believe in the script, and you said, you know, went full force, you know, threw the sucker punch in there, didn't didn't worry about like, oh my God, should I take this out? So it was probably, is it better for you that you raised the money yourself because you didn't have to go through a studio that said, no, you had, I mean, I know a couple, one studio didn't pick it up because you didn't have an, any nudity in it. So it's probably better that you were able to raise the money and do it yourself because you had free reign on that. Yeah, I I like having artistic control. I I don't like being told what to do. I don't mind suggestions. I'll take them from anyone, you know, um, especially my actors, because a good director knows how to listen to his actors. And uh, they made terrific suggestions, especially Jam Murphy. Uh, She was, uh, if there are any directors out there looking for a great, beautiful, blonde actress, 30 years old, cast her because you'll really be glad she you did she made the set fun Mm -hmm. you know if anybody had a right to be a diva right this gorgeous blonde and a a couple scenes in a push-up bra and high heels and you know uh if anybody had a reason to be uptight it could have been her and yet she was like Let's make a movie, boys. And she was just so much fun. Yeah. Um, because, you know, now with the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. uh, and all that stuff, I, I really do empathize with uh, women and the oppression of, of women and what they've been through. Because uh, I've seen a lot of that, you know, throughout my years. Um, directors and producers using their power to manipulate women uh into doing things where it robs them of their own agency and dignity and um and so i certainly love and respect all women and my film i hope depicts an honest woman in a crisis in her marriage just doing the best she can Mm -hmm. and uh and I think I succeeded. I mean, um, even though the 
film itself is from Nick's point of view. He's the central character. She's, you know, the um, the force of action in it. She she takes the dramatic action uh, yeah. in the story, and you know, it, it's it's a trip trying to write women when you're a man. Mm-hmm. You know, because I re- again, I don't pull any punches. I mean, I have dialogue about women's periods and their cycle and the moods that they get in and their hormones. I just go right for it, you know, because I figure if you're going to do it, go for it, man. Mm -hmm. Just go for it. If you, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's probably good. Exactly. Yeah. It reminds me of years ago, South Park did an episode where they were doing a Christmas pageant and they said, well, we have to take out this because it's going to offend the Jewish people. We have to take out this because it's going to offend the Christians. Finally, they took out everything that offended everybody. And people are watching go, this is boring. Let's go home. <laughs> There's nothing left. Exactly. Yeah. If you don't offend someone, you must be doing something wrong. Exactly. You don't piss somebody off, you know? Yeah. Like I said, I think for me, I have a great sense of humor where I think anything can be made fun of. It's just There's a way of doing it. You don't have to be mean about it, but there's a way That's you can right. do things. And I, and just knowing what you're saying about this and what I read about the movie, I'm very much looking forward to it. It's got, it has pretty much everything that I would like in a movie. It's got a great sense of humor. And so I'm, I will definitely be spreading the word once this um, interview comes out about have everybody watch this movie. Please do. Please do. I definitely will. You know, I, I need the support. I don't have a big studio behind me. I have a small little distribution company, Dead Talk Live Media, and they're working like crazy to promote the film. But, I don't have, you know, Netflix behind me or Hulu or some big, you know, massive corporate entity that uh, is backing me. It's just uh, a guy in New York that made a movie and it's going to have to be a grassroots thing where people say, hey, you've got to you've got to see this because it's just too much fun, you know. And um, and when it's taken as fun, it really works, you know. And I wish I heard about this earlier, but didn't Chris Noth from uh, Sex in the City and um, Law and Order, didn't he have a screening at his club? He did, as a matter of fact. Chris yeah. is a buddy of mine, and he had a screening at his place, and he laughed like crazy. Oh, my God, we had so many laughs. He goes, you realize this is going to piss a lot of people off, right? And I go, yeah, he goes, this is very anti-woke. I, I said, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to get crucified. <laughs> But, uh, you know, hopefully people see the humanity. Yeah. And hopefully these changes, whether it's the Me Too movement or, you know, thank God, finally, uh, inclusivity with, you know, people of uh, different cultures getting an opportunity to play leads and have stories be about them, that we expand rather than contract, Mm -hmm. that we you know, increase our, you know, uh, breadth and width of artistic understanding to, to, to let there be room for everyone. You know, there's room for everyone in this world. And as long as you harm no one. Exactly. As long as no one is harmed, that's the key. And, and kindness is king. You know, kindness is the new cool. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I saw Bono the other day and he 
and was doing a tiny desk NPR thing. And he said that, uh, you know, I find myself as I'm getting older, only wanting to hang around with my friends that I'm comfortable with. And the ones that I don't want to have conversations with, I avoid. And I don't think that's a good idea. Because if I had had this conversation with Michael Hutchinson, you know, the lead singer of In Excess, he might still be here today. Mm -hmm. And he did a song uh, that was quite beautiful. And I know what he means, um, that the hard choices, the tough choices, most people cop out on them. You know, and uh, in theater... In film, in television, even radio for that matter. Uh, you know, this is our arena to speak the truth, mm -hmm. to reflect where society is at, and to do whatever we can to improve the quality of life for people by entertaining them. And, you know, really what we do is divertissement, as the French would say, you know, we distract people. We, we, we give them a chance to escape from their reality for a few hours so that they can get lost in the story. And yeah. then when they return to their own problems, you know, perhaps they have a new and healthier perspective as a result. Yeah. Well, see, I agree with you a thousand percent. I respect all the movements, but I think the people that get offended the most are people that would never go see your movie people that have too much time on their hands. It's probably maybe three or four people that are home at three o'clock in the afternoon. They're out of work and they're bored and they're like a keyboard warrior. They would never say anything to your face. And they're never, they're the people who are not gonna buy a ticket to see this movie or go see that comedian or whatever it is, but they're complaining right. about it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to watch it. There's an on button and there's an off button. <laughs> right, right. So that's why I think that, like you said, it kills me that this, uh, this woke movement is out there with really doesn't have to be because if you don't like it, nobody's putting a gun to your head and said, you have to watch this, you have to listen to this. So if you like it, good, go ahead and enjoy it. So I think everybody should have, like you said, without hurting anybody, be able to do it and entertain the people. Because there's a lot of people out there that like what you're doing and let them enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, imagine being in North Korea, you can't even read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You can't even read a book unless it's about the family of King, whatever the fuck. Kim Jong Un. I mean, you can't even read a book. You can you I imagine know. that kind of oppression? Yeah. What, what the mind must, what it must shrink to become. You know, uh, literature saved my life, man. Mm -hmm. You know, high as I said at the outset of this interview, high quality literature. Just. Get a book of poems by Yeats or Keats or Byron or Browning or Walt Whitman, a great American poet, mm -hmm. genius. Emily Dickinson, read a poem and it'll do the same thing for you that a drink might do. It, you know, rather than drinking alcohol and killing yourself, read a poem out loud. It'll really change your consciousness. And, alter the way you perceive things you know um we are all of us in this together whether you know we make our living in the entertainment business or 
you know, you're a cop or a, you know, insurance salesman, whatever you do, as long as you do it well and do it with respectability and honor, you know, a garbage collector. I mean, my parents used to say to me when I was a kid, we don't care what you become. You can become a garbage collector as long as you're good at it, as long as you do well. And uh, I had that kind of freedom too, despite all the restrictions of being uh, in pecuniary circumstances. I, I had the freedom to explore what I wanted to be. And my my parents were very supportive. And when I started working as an actor, you know, they came to see everything that I was in. You know, they'd fly all over the country. They had no money. They'd fly all over the country to come and see their boy, you know. Wow. That's good. Now, I have a question for you. As a, I'm going to ask you first as a director, then as an actor. Because I interviewed somebody that worked with Clint Eastwood in several movies, and he was saying that Clint Eastwood has, he always wants to keep it genuine. He doesn't want to seem rehearsed. So it's basically one take, let's go. And then you have people like Stanley Kubrick who would do a minimum of sometimes of 150 takes on The Shining and other movies like Full Metal Jacket. So as a director, what's your style? Okay, I understand what Clint Eastwood is saying. Uh, and, you know, he's certainly been around long enough to know what he's talking about. However, despite the fact that it's not as fresh on the fifth or sixth take, your job is to make it look fresh. Mm -hmm. And rehearsal really only improves the idiosyncrasy and the detail involved in the scene's schematics and dramatic narrative. So I'm all for rehearsing. I don't want to stand there and do take after take after take for no reason because it's just a waste of time. But I will shoot it until my actor is comfortable, till I know he's got it or she's got it. I'll give them that. If they say, can I have another one? I'm like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I get it, what I want in the first or second or third take, you know, print, let's move on. I mean, I don't need to sit there and waste time especially in this instance where I was the producer, I couldn't afford to. But I also, and I think you'll see, my actors are so relaxed. Yeah. They're, they are having so much fun. You can't have fun unless you're relaxed, right? Yeah. And, and for that, I give myself a bit of a pat on the back. But I'm, I'm in between Stanley Kubrick, who I, I think was a great director. You know, I, I think that... Um, Shining was great, and 2001 is fantastic, and you know, uh, even the, the very first one with Kirk Douglas, that great uh, military movie. I can't remember the name of it, but um, is that the one with Peter Sellers that had a, yeah. how, how I dropped the bomb or something? It was it had a oh, Doctor oh, right, Strangelove, right. Doctor Strangelove. Strange yeah, that was a great movie, and also Lolita and Clockwork Orange. He, uh, Lolita was done. Yeah. He, he was a master, you know, he may have gotten a little carried away, you know, as he got older. I don't know. Uh, I know people that have worked with him and they did say, and I actually did a, a commercial uh, years ago for some law firm. And this guy, you know, I needed to do, look, I had kids, I had to make health insurance. I had to pay the bills, you know, 
I did whatever I had to do to survive as an actor. And uh, I booked this commercial. <laughs> it was for a law firm. And I don't want to say the guy's name. I don't mean this disparagingly, but I had to say, I had to do this same take. I'm telling you, 65 times. One line. <laughs> the crew was standing there like going, out of here. for no reason. He just kept saying, I just want you to do it again. I just want you to do it again. Just do it again. Please do it again. Do it again. And it was the same. I had to have the same. I had to be like really afraid. I'm like, more. So, I mean, it was like really like really terrible. I mean, just I was such a ham, but I did it, you know, because that's my job. And I, I have no business telling the director how many takes he should or shouldn't have in a scene. That's not my affair. Nor do actors have any business telling the director when to cut the camera. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you can really piss people off by going, calling cut. That's not your job. Mm -hmm. Your job is to act the scene. And one of the things I learned from Pacino was never stop just because they say cut. Mm -hmm. And I think it's still in there in Injustice for All. They yelled cut, and Al pulls out a package of lifesavers. And he goes, here, kid, you want a lifesaver? And I go, sure. And I take, I think it's still in there. And I take one, and I put it in my mouth. And, and then the scene ends. And it's just a beautiful, organic, spontaneous moment. Yeah. But you do have to stick to the script. You know, you, you, you know I'm an actor studio member, so, I mean, I understand improv, and... I can do improv and I, I, I think it's very useful if, if it leads to ultimately doing the scene. Mm -hmm. If you're just doing improvisation because you don't want to learn the lines, it's never going to help you. Yeah. You have to improvise according to the circumstances of the scene and then apply it to the dialogue that the writer has given you. And when you do TV, let me tell you, it's 46 minutes. That, that's all they every scene is timed with a stopwatch yeah because they've got to get those commercials in there man and uh you learn how to work the method is not useful for television you simply don't have time yeah. on stage it can be useful and in film it can be useful but generally speaking i'm a classically trained actor as opposed to a method actor i'm, I'm more of a natural born method actor I, I never studied the method i just went around the studio and heard people talk about it and read the books and but i do all that naturally it just comes to me you know the character comes from within me i'm so a the camera stops rolling you, you you become thomas g waits and you don't stay in character the entire time like daniel day lewis who who insists that people will call him you have to call him abraham lincoln throughout the whole um, filming of the movie yeah, I, I find that excessive. You know, yeah. I mean, I understand it and I respect his his great talent and he's done a great job. But, yeah. you know, I've worked with some I worked with the great Geraldine Page, one of the greatest actresses to ever live. And Geraldine would be like, 
fooling around off stage, you know, making jokes and, you know, oh, and then it's her cue to come on stage and she'd be like, okay, and she'd go on stage and she'd be great. Yeah. You know, was that you know, Paradise I, Lost? I think Paradise Lost. That's exactly yep. right. Well, you really did do your research. You I know did. more about me than I do. <laughs> if you have any questions, just ask me. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm going to call you up and ask you for advice on my next move. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Rich. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. I'm loving this. Um, do you have to go now? Yeah, I'm about wrapped up. Okay. So what I want to ask you is, well, I really do appreciate you being on the show, but I have so much more. And I'd love to do when you have some time. And I know you're a really busy man. I'd love to do a part two because... We didn't sure. even get to more than half of it. I would love to uh, continue some other time. Yeah, I'd like to do that. And, um, you know, uh, especially after you've seen the movie, then we'll have a lot more to talk about. Most definitely. So what I'll do is I'll do my outro now, I'll send you the email, and then we, we can get the, you know, the links that you want up and the pictures you want. And then we'll set up another date in a couple of weeks and we'll have part two, talk about your music career, talk about some of the other movies you've done, talk about your stage work, talk about moving to Iowa to become a uh, playwright. We have a lot of things to talk about. Yep, I've been around. Oh yeah. All right, well, Thomas, it's been great talking to you and I will talk to you again and let, let my, all my listeners know, Amazon Prime, check out Target. It's gonna be a great movie. Thank you so much, Rich. Oh, you're very welcome. That wraps up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to actor, director, playwright, and acting teacher, Thomas G. Waits, for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule to be a guest on my show. He will be back. Another huge thanks goes out to editor extraordinaire John Bristol of Elmo Productions for always doing a superb job editing the show each and every week and making it available to all. I am also extremely grateful to Joseph Timothy Quirk, and Rob Bull for all of their hard work and dedication and all they do to make my show available, not only on several Connecticut radio stations, but Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Audible, and iHeartRadio. Thank you both very much. And lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. <laughs>